Hey, this is Monster Mike Welch. I'm a guitar player from Boston, Massachusetts, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues. So, the monster is back? Because I wasn't sure... <laughs> so, here's the thing. Um, there was a period of a couple years in the very late 90s, early 2000s, where I went through an artist formerly known as Prince Phase, uh, where I was just like, Monster Mike is not my name. And then when I started dating Jeanette, who is now my wife, um, we started dating in 99, probably about 2000 or 2001, where she convinced me of this, that people know me as Monster Mike Welch, which is infinitely preferable to them not knowing me at all. Um, and, and the joke was, and it wasn't even a joke. She said that she would tell people, yeah, my boyfriend's a blues guitar player, Mike Welch. And without fail, it would be monster Mike Welch. (laughs) And so my joke in return was that I was, I was okay taking the name back as long as it was consistently spelled dot, 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 all caps, monster Mike Welch, question mark. Um, (laughs) but you know, professionally, I, Everything I've been on since then has said Monster Mike Welch on it, but because I publicly said I didn't like that nickname in 1999, um, people are still like, is it Monster Mike Welch? So yeah, no, uh, it's not a nickname that I particularly loved for a long time. Uh, it's self-aggrandizing in a way that I'm not sometimes comfortable with, um, but... It's also a huge part of my journey from the very start of it. And, you know, right now, Monster Mike Welch and I are on pretty good terms. We're getting along pretty well. So so I'm okay with it. And I guess we we should say to the one or two people who might not know where that name comes Absolutely. from. Absolutely. I was, I, was, I was about to get to that. Um, so when I was very young, when I was 13 years old, I'd been playing blues jams locally in Boston for a couple of years. And one of the things that happens when there's a 11, 12 year old playing local blues jams is that word starts to spread. Um, and the first house of blues club was opened as a small blues club in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, and they were having a big opening night celebration. And that was going to be the blues brothers band and Junior Wells was there, and Eddie Floyd, and Charlie Musselwhite, and Robert Lockwood, and Paul Rogers from Free and Bad Company, and Joe Walsh, and a bunch of people. You know, I was um, I was the little nerd who was excited about seeing Junior Wells and Steve Proper and Matt Murphy with the Blues Brothers Band. Um, uh, but they were looking for sort of undiscovered local talent for that. And like I said, word starts to spread when there's a little kid playing in the blues jams. Um, So I was added to that bill and Dan Aykroyd as the front person of the blues brothers band, one of the investors in house of blues and just in general, um, a real forward facing champion of this music. And I think sometimes underrated as such mm-hmm. um, but he, it was decided that I needed a nickname and he came up with Monster Mike Welch and the next day it was in the Boston Globe and 
I was 13 years old, and I'd never had anything like that happen to me in my entire life. So I got very dramatic about it. It was like, the name has stuck. Um, and even then, I was unsure about how I felt about the specific nickname. But again, going back to Jeanette, as she says, it could be a lot worse. There are people with far worse nicknames than <laughs> than that one. Um, but yeah, yeah, like I said, I mean, it's just such a part of my journey. And... Um, you know, going by Monster Mike Welch is sort of, for me, embracing everything that I've been, you know, and everything I've been through. So you started really early, as you have just pointed yes. out. But, I mean, that's, I mean, you had been playing for years before this gig. How did that Yeah, I started, I started playing. Well, we, you know, we were, uh, you had mentioned earlier on uh, when we were talking the Beatles influence. So I had an older cousin. I still have an older cousin, but... Uh, when I was about eight years old, he was probably 13, and he started playing guitar, and he was an obsessive Beatles fan, and he was learning to play Beatles songs, and I thought that was the absolute coolest thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. Um, and he ended up uh, giving me a barely playable guitar he had laying around, um, somewhat over my parents' objections. Um, uh, but just, just because I think they, they, you know, they were like, don't do that. You're throwing a guitar away. (laughs) Um, and then it was single minded obsessiveness. That was all I wanted to do for, I mean, realistically, uh, you know, (laughs) I mean, realistically I'm 44 now and I was eight years old then. So, for you know, uh, well, thirty six uh, years. Yeah, then I, the 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 thirty six years after that, um, in my head it was thirty five, and I realized I have to adjust for inflation. <laughs> um, but but yeah, no, I just became single mindedly obsessed by it, and my father had one of those archetypal sixties record collections, so he had Beatles records. Um, he also had, um, all of the Dylan records, uh, Stones records, everything Clapton played on, Hendrix, and some older blues stuff. Um, and I became obsessed with the other music he had because he had the Beatles records. So I went through all the Beatles records and then, uh, you know, if... I figured if he was hip enough to have that, then I should probably check out some of the other stuff. And I was obsessively reading about music, and um, and my dad also got very into the idea of you know going to record stores and checking things out. Um, but eventually, that led me to the blues because I really took to feeling like a guitar player. Um, what does that mean? Does that mean you were more I, so, so, Well, I don't even know. I felt like, I feel like, um, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll use my cousin as an example. Um, he played guitar because he wanted to sing songs and be in bands. I played guitar because I fell in love with playing guitar. 
Um, and I think that did lead me to gravitate more towards lead players. Um, obviously, like I said, there was Clapton and Hendrix in my dad's record collection. And, um, uh, you know, I think these days Eric Clapton is determined to show as many people as possible how problematic he can be. But one of the things, one of the things about him that I will always be grateful for and I'll always respect is he gives very good interview in which he credits every single point of influence. Um, he's not a person who ever recorded old blues songs and credited them to himself or traditional arranged by Eric Clapton, right. you know, um, you know, up to and including, you know, when he had, a. And this might be an apocryphal story, but he made a record of blues songs called From the Cradle in the 90s, and there were a couple Jimmy Rogers songs on it. And I believe he ended up personally writing Jimmy Rogers a check because there was a question about whether the publishing company was going to actually get the money. You know, so, I mean, on that level, you know, on that level, I will always have respect for him. And I'll always be very grateful to him because I remember there was one interview in Guitar Player magazine in the 80s where, you know, besides talking about B.B. Uh, King and Freddie King and Muddy Waters and Howl Wolf, the people I would have heard of from other sources, um, it also mentioned like Ray Charles Live at Newport and Little Walter and... Uh, you know, there there was just stuff that I probably wouldn't have discovered on my own until much later. Right. Um, and for me, there was something about the blues that I don't know. For for a confused, over emotional little kid there was something about the emotional core of the blues that resonated with me. The first place I ever heard that was actually John Lennon's voice, was the edge in John Lennon's voice. There was something about that that made me want more of that. And then, you know, I think when I fell in love the, with the guitar, I would start hearing that in guitar players. Um, but when I got into the blues, it felt like it was music that was all about that. There wasn't a lot of extraneous information. Um, I think I have a much more nuanced view of it these days, um, but still, that central core is what resonates with me about this music, and it's why I became obsessed with the blues and immersed myself so much in that. I have to ask, when you described yourself as over-emotional kid, yeah. can you elaborate on that? Um, Is that any more so than anybody, any other kid? Uh, well, I think... I think it's true for a lot of kids. Um, you know, uh, but I, I do think I... I do think that I always tended towards the melodramatic <laughs> in, a, in a way, you know, I mean, I just always felt things very intensely. Um, and, you know, I mean, I've also had lifelong struggles with depression and 
and you know various related mental conditions but um you know i certainly don't think i was unique in that but there was something that i heard in the music that resonated with that part of me now the interesting thing is that right around the same time there's a whole generation of kids who started playing blues guitar you know i am within two days exactly the same age as Derek trucks i'm right around the same age as sean costello who passed away um you know uh definitely johnny lang and kenny wayne shepherd made their first records around the same time i did um you know there were people who are my age but started playing professionally a little later on people like nick curran but there's there was this whole generation and i think part of it is that we were probably the first generation of not to put too fine a point on it but white kids whose parents had blues records um but also like clearly there was something about this music that resonated with a bunch of kids it would, and it didn't resonate with everybody you know there were you know there were some people became entranced by this music and needed to play it more than anything and then for some people it didn't resonate at all well, the, the interesting thing about that is that and it's an unfortunate side effect is that over the past 20 years or so, the demographic of the musicians has gotten substantially younger, but the audience hasn't necessarily. Because all of the younger people who fell in love with this music started bands or picked up instruments. As opposed to, you know, just uh, buying tickets to shows and records, you know? And, and that's... And, you know, I mean, definitely I've seen the demographic shift back and forth a little bit, but but these days, you know, it's, I feel like there are a lot of people within 10 years of my age either way playing um, to people who are within 20 years of my age either way, um, you know, uh, within 20 to 30 years of my age, not either way, one way. But it, it is interesting to me that there was a whole wave of kids for whom this became the thing. It is curious that the younger players didn't bring a lot of the younger audience so there are very real logistical obstacles to that first of all the only place we could do this thing was in bars for the most part right. um there were clubs around boston where if exceptions were made and people were confined to backstages or like i could bring a few friends but there were very few places where kids could go and see me play. And when you get to the sort of blues events that are all ages, they tend to be festivals or events where maybe the ticket price is higher. So though that can be an obstacle for new listeners or for younger people. I would guess that I probably... Uh, proportionally sold more records to younger people than I played in front of. Mm. Because I have had musicians my age or younger telling me that 
my earlier records were some of the things they listened to when they started out. And part of that was because they had something I didn't, which was evidence that, hey, here's someone your age who's doing this. When you played at, let's say, the House of Blues at the age of 13, mm-hmm. did you know that you were going to be a musician by that time? Or did you... Oh, I, I yeah, no, absolutely. I, 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 I didn't see any other alternative. And it is... It's by the grace of my parents that I very much stayed uh, grounded in any way. I had a very explicit deal with my parents where there were some conditions that if I didn't break those conditions, they would be supportive to the point of managing my career. And managing my career for them was protective rather than proactive. They never pushed me. But the deal was that I couldn't drink or take drugs. I had to get out of high school with grades good enough to get into any college I wanted to get into, regardless of whether or not I planned to actually go. And I couldn't become a self-important asshole. And any of those conditions, if any of those conditions were broken, they would have pulled the plug without remorse. Um, But they also knew that this was the only thing that would that the music was so much part of my being and so much part of who I was and wanted to be that they didn't want to pull the plug. They just needed me to know that I was going to come out of the other end of this thing, a functional human being, as much as possible. Um, well, when you, when you get the recognition that you did at such an early age, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know how that... I mean, obviously it came from mainly older people and older blues musicians... Mm-hmm. What did that do to you? Like, was it difficult to keep your head intact? It was to some extent. Um, I think I... I think I processed that by... not dwelling on how odd it was. And... in my head... in my head, I, I... the scenario was that, you know, well, it's kind of necessary that I have this recognition because if I didn't, then I wouldn't be allowed to keep playing. You know, that, that, and, and I almost didn't allow myself to connect that to whether what I was doing was good or not. Like, it's, it's, it sounds arrogant, but it wasn't. It was actually, it actually for me created gratitude. Um, because I didn't, I didn't focus on, I don't know, being special or whatever, whatever it might've been. It was just like, this is a thing I need to do. And these are the circumstances that need to happen for me to continue doing that thing. And being very grateful to the people who allowed me to continue doing that thing. I mean, the other thing is that you're probably one of the last generations to have worked with some of the greats it's it's true i i've been um i feel like i've been listening to a lot of records these days by people i know who have passed on and just thinking about wow you know no one who played on this record is still around um and you know Part of that is that there were people who died too young, and part of it is that, you know, that 
it's just the reality of being, you know, 20 to 40 years younger than a lot of the people I grew up playing with. Did you ever question... I know you didn't question being a musician. Did you ever question being a blues musician? Because I know you have more than Late, later, on, later on, I did. I got... Uh, there was a while where I felt like... When I was in my very late teens, I went through a couple years where I felt like I was rebelling against what in particular, I'm not entirely sure. I think I was resisting... Um, I think I was subconsciously resisting staying on the same path that I had been on since I was 11 years old. And... And very... I don't know. It was almost like I had this image of myself as being Dylan at Newport or something, where, you know, I was going to... Um, anger all the purists and it was it, it was this sort of misplaced punk rock attitude that I I don't think it helped anybody out but I was expanding my horizons at the time um, and what ended up happening was that in 1999 my mom had a fairly severe stroke that she has I mean it's thankfully very quickly recovered from largely but at the time it looked like I wasn't sure I knew she was going to survive I didn't know in what state she was going to survive and that really was my cue to get off the roller coaster for a while Um, and I ended up taking a break ended up applying to go to Berkeley School of Music in Boston did two semesters at Berkeley and during my second semester I got two phone calls and one of them was from Mudcat Ward to see if I wanted to join Sugar Ray and the Blue Tones and the other one was from David Maxwell to see if I wanted to play a bunch of gigs with James Cotton and the first semester I spent at Berkeley School of Music I felt like it was one of the best decisions I'd ever made I felt like you know so many of the gaps I'd had learning music, you know, on the job and being focused on the blues thing. So many of them were being filled in and I felt like I was seeing all of these new angles on things I already knew and, and I was excited about that. And then the second semester, I played some gigs with Sugar and the Blue Tones and I played some gigs with James Cotton. And I realized that I could have stayed in school and done blues gigs and probably been fine, but I would have, I wouldn't have been giving either the amount of time that they required to really do it right. And, you know, the, for obvious reasons, the playing with some of the greatest blues musicians in history won out over, you know, learning new scales. Um, so I'm, I'm great. I'm grateful that I, that I took the time off to go to music school, but you know, I, I think it was necessary for me to detach myself from the treadmill I'd been on, especially because 
it was always very important to me that I not self-identify as a prodigy. That, again, I was grateful to the circumstances that I was so young and that would get people in the door. But it was always very important to me that I make music that I would have been... that I would have wanted to hear from an adult musician, basically. That I it wasn't about... It wasn't about this is good for a kid or look what this kid can do. It it was instead the best, most mature music I could make at any given point. But the reality of it was that there was a certain amount of child prodigy behind the marketing and behind uh, what brought the audience in. And... I think that trying to continue the exact same career I'd started when I was 11 when I was 21, 22, I think that would have been very damaging to me. I don't think I would have handled that transition well. Um, I think I would have ended up mourning the loss of something I was ambivalent about in the first place. So the best thing that happened to me was joining Sugar Ray and the Blue Tones, which had been my favorite band when I was 13. And it was like getting a second apprenticeship, as well as being surrounded by people like, you know, Mudcat and Neil Goovin and Anthony had actually played in earlier versions of my band when I was very young. And I'd been around them almost since I started. So it was on some level like an apprenticeship and on some level like a family reunion where it was like being around older brothers or uncles or what have you. Um, and it's funny, I did a few years with, with Sugar Ray and then I left for a little while and I wasn't in that great a place mentally and emotionally when I left and I did a year or two of almost going back to the sort of punk rock rebellious aesthetic which was not a great idea at that time or earlier and then I rejoined the Blue Tones a few years later and I feel like that's the point when I started to grow into the musician I am now if we go back when you went yeah yeah no they, I, I, prob- I probably skipped over a lot of things <laughs> but, I, but I'm curious when you went to when you decided you wanted to go to Berkeley and yeah, uh, and had you not gotten those two phone calls, I mean, it speaks to how great you are when you get two phone calls like that with offers to join Cotton or Sugar Ray's band. It's it it it, it you know, it's it's funny. Like I'd been at that point playing professionally for a decade, um, but at the same time, there was the part of me that. Um, when Mudcat called and said, you know, do you, you know, do you want to do a couple gigs with Sugar Ray? And I'm like, yeah, what? So like a side project thing? What is it? He said, no, no, it'd be joining the Blue Tones. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> you know, because in my head, that was a band I looked up to. And it didn't matter that I'd been doing it, that, that I'd been doing it on my own for so long and that I'd made records and I'd had success. It was still like, oh, okay. I'm, uh, this is, now this is serious, almost. <laughs> but, if you didn't get those phone calls... What would have happened? Um, I have no idea. But what, what, which, what did you hope Berkeley would 
give you? Like, was there a chance that you would have I, gone on to composition think, and jazz? And I think that there was a... I think I was looking for something larger than myself. I think that I was excited about making connections with people who thought about music very differently. Um, you know, I was listening to all kinds of music and I realized that, you know, like the people who play with Prince are all capable of, you know, of like doing heavy jazz gigs or, you know, funk and R&B gigs or hard rock gigs, but they are playing this brilliant original music with a true original. And I think I was kind of searching for the skill set to be able to play with anyone, regardless of, regardless of genre background. Now, the fact that I ended up finding that in people who were deeper into the genre I'd been spending my life in is, you know, I think that's the, that's the thing I didn't expect. Um, but I did not want to be the star of the show because I felt like my, my worldview was limited in some ways, more than I felt like my skills were limited. Although I knew in order to expand my worldview, I also needed to expand my skills. Because one of the things about um, being a touring front person for a band is that you end up basically playing the same 20 songs that you have written over and over in different situations every night with the same people. Which is great and can lead to inspiring uh, musical moments, but it also it can also limit your worldview because um, because you are digging deeper and finding new things in a very narrow trench you know, and even if you listen to new things every day, if you're still playing the same music every night then uh you know, then it's it's limiting, and that doesn't have to be a bad thing. But um, that combined with the fact that I knew I didn't want to be, you know, I did I didn't want to be the ex prodigy trying to relive the high school glory days. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I, like I felt I. And I felt like the way to do that was to expose myself to as much new information and as many new people as possible. And like I said, what ended up happening was um, I immersed myself in the music I'd always loved in a much deeper way because of, you know, playing with musicians who knew more and had more experience than I did. Yeah. I mean, at that band still today and, and certainly back mm -hmm. then is like top notch blues band. I mean, I got a chance oh, yeah. to see you with Sugar Ray and Mudcat and Neil. And, oh, yeah. And we, 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 all, we always loved coming up and playing. Yeah. And, I mean, you yeah, guys are on fire when you're on stage. I wonder, at what point were you, did you become that musician that wasn't the prodigy, that wasn't the young kid that people marveled at? But was there a point where you thought, okay, now I don't know if it's of age or if it's of perception from the audience that 
I I think th- I think there's definitely a perception thing. So one of the things that happened is when I joined the Blue Tones, the Blue Tones had actually just gotten back together a couple of years before, after all through the 90s, Sugar was in Roomful of Blues and Mudcat uh, was playing with Ronnie Earl or Jay Giles or whoever. And the Blue Tones in some ways were starting over. And over the course of the time I spent with them, actually, you know, I felt like were starting to get deserved recognition for how great they'd always been. You know, like, they weren't getting Blues Music Award nominations, and then, you know, the records we made together, suddenly, you know, there were a couple years where we got more nominations than anyone else that year. We never won anything, but we were always nominated, so people were thinking of us, which was great. (laughs) Um, But, you know, for me, that wasn't, you know... For me, that was just the recognition that Ray and the band had always been due. I joined the Blue Tones semi-anonymously at first. And the other thing is that I had been... My highest profile had been as a skinny teenager. And then... Between that and joining the Blue Tones, I had gained a bunch of weight and grown a beard. And I think that there were a certain number of people who saw the Blue Tones, really liked the guitar player in the Blue Tones, had seen the Monster Mike Welch band back in the 90s, and didn't process that it was the same guy. Until a little later on, when I'd been in the band longer, and we released a record where my name was on the cover with Ray's. And But I feel like I... I started getting respect as the guitar player in the Blue Tones that wasn't necessarily about having been young, you know? Right. And then, um, and then, you know, later on, I think a lot of more people started putting it together. But I think that also extended the life of that, you know, are we calling him Monster Mike Welch or not? Because there were there were a few years there, like I said, where I was semi anonymous in Sugar Ray and the Blue Tones. So you know, I when I started using Monster Mike Welch again, it wasn't nearly as public as when I had stopped using Monster Mike Welch. Um, what what did playing with that band do for you as a musician? Um, so much of it is abstract, so it's hard to quantified, but I would say that it made me a more reactive player, a better listener on stage. Um, It deepened my playing. From being a little kid, I'd always been, and I think the thing that stuck out with me when I was a little kid is that I was incredibly emotionally intense even if sometimes it wasn't focused or even if sometimes like, but it was, it was clear watching me when I was very young that, you know, I was putting everything I had into it and it was kind of life or death for me. I think, you know, uh, being in the blue tones, I learned to harness that in a different way. And for quite a few years there, the thing I became most known for was how I played with singers. Because all through that time, I had more or less stopped singing. 
I would sing a couple songs with the blue tones. Uh, in the mid-2000s, I did a couple records for a French label where I sang, and those did fairly well overseas, but never really got any commercial follow-through in the U.S. But, but there was a period there of a few years where people either saw me with the blue tones or they would see me touring with other singers or sitting with other singers. So it, I'd be playing with Daryl Newlish or Danielle Nicole or Shamika Copeland or, you know, I became known as the person who plays with singers, um, which culminated in my uh, joining up with Mike Ledbetter in 2016. And it's funny, all through that time, I was working on my singing and becoming a much better singer. I just wasn't doing that much of it publicly because, you know, my, my joke was, why would I sing when I can hire Sugar Ray Norcia to do it for me? You know? Right. Um, and, um, and it took me a while to get comfortable with the idea of singing again. How important is singing to you? It's absolutely as important as the guitar playing and requires a lot more concentration, practice, and effort on my part. And I'm under no illusions that I'm a singer on the same level that I am a guitar player, but I also feel very strongly that the blues is vocal music. And as a guitar player, you know, blues guitar is predicated on mimicking the human voice. So, you know, over the years, my influences as a guitar player are as much singer... There are as many vocal influences on my guitar playing as there are guitar influences on my guitar playing. Some of that's as simple as the technique of bending strings or adding vibrato to mimic the human voice. Some of that's a phrasing thing, you know. And I I presume working with the caliber of singers like Sugar Ray or like... Oh, yeah. it, well, and well that's 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 the thing it's funny that it kind of came around it was almost a circular thing because so many of the greatest blues guitar players of all time were also the greatest blues singers of all time you know from bb king and muddy waters on down and very often they would play more or less the exact same way they sang you know buddy guy sang high and crazy and played high and crazy. Otis Rush had that sort of very vulnerable, wide sobbing vibrato, both as a singer and a guitar player. B.B. Um, B. King was at the same time both conversational and had this, you know, uh, sort of gospel or semi-operatic falsetto and intensity, you know. So, so I was never able to sing the way I heard in my head but I could play guitar like the singer I was hearing in my head. And, you know, going back to Mike Ledbetter, when I heard him sing, I'm like, that's the exact singer I've been trying to play like. And one of the things that happened is I started absorbing influences from all these singers I was playing with. And then when I started singing again, I realized that I was... My singing was influenced by my own guitar playing, which had been influenced by, you know, it, it was almost like I came around, it came around sort of the opposite of someone like B.B. King, presumably 
sang first and then learned to play guitar. And because it was all part of the same musical worldview and the same storytelling aesthetic and the same voice, and he ended up playing guitar exactly the way he sang because there was a sound he wanted. I feel like I found that sound on guitar and then developed the ability as a singer to to hang with that, even if... Um, even if I'm never going to be, uh, even I, I'm, I'm never going to be a singer on the level that I am a guitar player. I just I don't. I have limitations as a singer, which I have. Um, I've done a lot of work to either overcome or to make work to my advantage. But yeah, no, especially during the past couple of years between, you know, the isolation of the pandemic and then being sick after that, which I'm sure we'll get to. I've been practicing singing every day pretty much because um, because I knew that when I came back to it I needed to be in shape to be able to really do it and I'm still you know I'm still at the point where I'm rebuilding my gigging schedule after years of being you know year, years of being out of commission but I feel like you know uh, the record I just made is the best singing I've ever done on record and and also took by far the least amount of work in the studio because I had been putting the work in as a singer leading up to it. I want to talk about Mike. Um, as I told you, absolutely, I was listening to an interview I did with Mike a number of years ago and the way he described the gig in Chicago at the Blues Festival when he did the tribute to Otis Rush and mm-hmm. having Otis Rush basically sit on stage with you guys, which you didn't know about until... Well, I guess he didn't know. He didn't know about, um, uh, and it wasn't just Otis. It was Otis and Buddy Guy standing next to each other. Or, obviously, Otis was sitting because Otis was in a wheelchair. Right. But I would look over and I would see, you know, probably two of the most important towering figures in my personal worldview watching us do one of these songs. And, and that was the other thing about playing with someone like Mike is I knew that it didn't matter what Otis and Buddy thought of my playing. I knew that if Mike was singing, the music was going to be good, and they were going to like that. But what does it do to a guitar player who loves the blues, who sees two major influential guitar players side of the stage staring at you? What's that like for you? It was... It was overwhelming... But I think I've got into that space that I had been in as a little kid when I would be in situations playing with someone like Junior Wells at the House of Blues opening, where it was just like... uh, I would take a deep breath, go, okay, this is the reality of this situation, time to play, go. As opposed to... um, worrying what Otis Rush thought about the way I was playing his song. It's funny because I had also... Mike and I were the young guys on that Otis Rush tribute. Every song had different combinations of people, and it was... I I looked at the list of people who were part of this, and my first assumption when I saw the list is like, oh, I'm probably just going to get on stage and end up playing rhythm guitar for somebody. And it's nice because... Dick Sherman, who's a legendary 
record producer out of Chicago and just facilitator of great blues music over the years. Um, he was the one who put the tribute together. And I saw the list of people who were going to be on it, and it was like, oh, okay, so it's Jimmy Johnson and Eddie Clearwater and Lurie Bell and Ronnie Earl and, um, like, I'm, I'm, you know, even thinking about who was on it, you know, um, you know, and Carl Weathersby and, you know, I guess Mike Wheeler's a younger generation, but, like, it was, it was all people for whom, um, like, I figured I was going to end up it was going to be a, an honor that Dick Sherman invited me to this thing and I would end up, you know, playing rhythm guitar on a song or two because, you know, I, of all of the people there, also, Mike and I were the ones who hadn't worked with Otis. In fact, that was the only time I ever met Otis. But it was important to Dick Sherman that Otis's present tense legacy be represented. So... And it's actually it's actually interesting because originally Dick Sherman had put Mike up with Ronnie Earl because because Mike had been the singer on some songs on one of Ronnie's records right. and they'd done an Otis Rush song or two on it I think but then Ronnie wanted to use his own singer Diane Blue and Mike actually said to Dick Sherman hey you know maybe I could play with Mike Welch. So Dick had me play with the full band as part of the opening instrumental. And then the first person he brought on was Mike. And Mike and I did Right Place, Wrong Time, um, which is one of my favorite Otis songs. I'd actually been I'd actually been playing that song on and off since I was 13 years old. It's one of my favorite songs. And, um, and so right at the beginning of this 90-minute long tribute, Mike and I were the featured performers and I know I'm good at my job. I know that I am an emotional player. I know that I'm a player who can get a response out of people. I've been doing it long enough where I'm comfortable with that. Um, Mike Ledbetter was unlike anything most people had seen ever in years, if not ever. In fact, I would say there's a very good, very good argument that he's the greatest blues singer the 21st century produced. And beyond that, uh, my presence there amplified and focused all of the things that made Mike great and did the same for my playing. So we pushed each other to we pushed each other to heights that neither one of us would have achieved on our own, even though that's not to diminish, you know, Mike Ledbetter on his own was and would have been one of the greatest singers ever to sing this music. But there was a fire between the two of us that is so much bigger than who I am as an artist. And is unlike anything I'd seen from anyone else. We should say that Mike had classical vocal training. Yeah, so, and and so this kind of goes back to uh, the my experience at Berkeley and one of the things that I had wanted to get out of that, but 
Mike was the most profound kind of musician that I can imagine, which means that he had um, probably more technical training and ability than maybe not any other singer who's sung the blues, but definitely in the very top tier because he had absolute pure classical training and complete mastery over his instrument. Now, those things are more or less irrelevant to blues singing, by and large. Except that if you are a great blues singer and you have that skill to lean on, it means that you can do literally anything your brain and heart require you to do to tell the story. And his technique was always in service of telling the story. And sometimes, you know, I mean, there were times where he knew how impressive it was when he would lay on the falsetto or when he would do certain runs, but he would do those when it was the moment of peak emotional impact to do it. He liked that it was impressive and would knock people sideways out of their seats when he did it, but but that wasn't the goal. Um, the goal was the emotional gut punch. And he sang just as many songs conversationally and without any displays of technique, if, if that was what the song required. So when, you, but when you rehearsed, I mean, I get the impression that that gig was a life changer. It was a moment where things changed. Yeah, it, it, it was. But when you were and rehearsing together, did you know that mm-hmm. it was going to be that special? The, the rehearsal for that was... Um, because, you know, it's funny. There had been two rehearsals for it, and I didn't make the first one because it was in Chicago and I was flying in for the gig, but I made sure I could be there for the second rehearsal. But, you know, I mean, it was this huge band with a five or six piece horn section and and two keyboard players and so the rehearsals were very involved and at least at that second rehearsal a lot of the people who were fronting the band were not there so Dick Sherman basically deputized Mike and I to play and sing all of the songs that other people were going to be playing and singing so the band could go over arrangements and it was overwhelming in that moment and that's when Mike and I started talking about moving forward and doing something he was singing with Nick Moss and I was playing with Sugar Ray and the Blue Tones and I did not think of myself as ready to leave Sugar Ray and the Blue Tones but I also felt like if I didn't do something with Mike I was going to regret that for the rest of my life um and it's funny, uh, our manager, Gina McLean, who wasn't actually managing us, but was helping us both out at that time, um, you know, she immediately started coming up with plans for the band she could put together around us and was just like, no, no, we're going to do this. You know, anything we do, we're going to do sort of on our own terms, which very much included her moving forward. But, but I ended up putting together the record we made 
with the idea that it was going to be kind of a high-profile side project. And I think Mike was more sure about leaving Nick Moss than I was sure about leaving Sugary and the Blue Tones at that point. But my initial feeling was it was going to be a side project and then whatever band Mike wanted to put together to do his own thing or whether he wanted to just do gigs and stay in Nick Moss's band or whatever, it would set him up to do whatever he wanted to do in the future. And then, you know, maybe he and I could do some gigs promoting it or not. And the more we got to know each other and then especially once we got in the studio, it was like, oh, this is no side project. You know, this is... um, This is the thing we've both been meant to do. And... Tragically, it was the last of the things that Mike got to do, as far as recording goes. But, um... But yeah, no, it was, um... And I had no way of knowing that, uh... Mike's time was short, obviously, when we got together. But there had been a couple of things where people my age or around the same age had passed on Um, you know in 2008 Sean Costello died and Sean and I had a somewhat standoffish relationship because of uh, things that happened early on and also we just never we never really clicked but you know I would hear things he did and I you know Right around the time that he died, I was like, you know, I should send him a message. I guess it was MySpace at the time, probably. And just let him know that, you know, hey, I've been hearing things you've been doing, and you sound great. Um, Because, you know, I think... um, And then, you know, if he chose to respond to that or, you know, whatever, if that turned into more of a friendship, that'd be great. But I should really just let him know, because he's sounding so good and... And then he passed away. Um, And then I became close after that with Nick Curran, who... And that, for me, was like... I felt like I'd learned my lesson with Sean. Like, if I I hear someone and, and they're great, I'm going to let them know and I'm going to reach out to them. And the upshot of that is that Nick and I became the kind of friends who are always always on the verge of, hey, you should come down to Austin. Hey, you should come up to Boston. Whatever it was. And then Nick passed away. And that... Between those two things, I... really started to believe that... if you feel... Strongly about what someone does. If someone does something that moves you as an artist, it's important to let them know. And if there's an opportunity to get together and collaborate, you should probably do that thing. So, I think before any of that happened, I probably would have been. I probably would have left the whole Welch Ledbetter thing as we had this amazing thing and hopefully sometime we can get to play together. Which is kind of what happens with a lot of musicians when they have a good experience together. It's like, we should totally do that again. 
and then it happens or it doesn't or you know you're on a festival together somewhere whatever it is but this was this was to the point where that night um, Jeanette couldn't be there that weekend I called her that night after the show and I'm like I think I've got to make a record with this guy I don't know what shape it's going to take I don't know anything about it but I feel like I need to do something about this and thank God I did because you know that's um, you know I mean when Mike passed in 2019 you know on one level I was very angry at a universe that would let that happen and on another level you know so I was angry that I only got you know two and a half years playing with him and then on another level I was like yeah but who gets two and a half years in a situation like that thank god I got that you know what did it do to you losing a musical partner and and a friend I Well, the Welch Ledbetter Connection, which was the band we put together, was booked to play on the legendary Rhythm and Blues Cruise in um, the beginning of February 2019. Mike died on January 21st. Um, It was decided that the band would go on the cruise and basically, like, you know... um, Last minute, Curtis Salgado and Andy Duncanson both agreed to come on the cruise and and sing with us. And there were a lot of great singers there. Danielle Nicole was there and Victor Wainwright. And, and so we ended up just putting together these sort of um, all-star shows. Sort of as tributes to Mike and also just as what else will we do, you know? And all of my friends ended up throwing me lifelines. Basically letting me come play with them whenever. Um, Like, Danielle brought me out to some trips as more or less part of her band for a little while. Uh, Victor Wainwright flew me down to Memphis to be on his record, and you know, just a lot of people very gently took care of me and made sure I was going to be okay without explicitly saying that's what they were doing. Um, and the first half of 2019, I was kept afloat by those people. And some of the Welch Ledbetter Connection gigs we kept and did more or less the same thing we had done on the boat with multiple singers and then it actually culminated the Welch Ledbetter Connection was booked to go back to the Chicago Blues Festival and we ended up doing it and that was the moment where I felt like okay, the bottom's dropping out of this thing I can't I'm exhausted and everyone played well in Chicago but it was just I saw Mike's family there and 
it was um, you know there was a big video tribute to Mike that played beforehand and it was kind of awkwardly a celebration but also kind of somber and and you know I at that point I started thinking about well I need to think about what my life and career looks like in a post Mike Ledbetter world and um, there were a bunch of benefits for his family and there were um, you know there were talks about you know continuing the band in some form or another but just by the time we got the Chicago Blues Festival I just saw that everyone was exhausted what's it like to play songs your songs with him without him well uh, do you want the funny version sure so the first song on our record was a cover of Elmore James Cry For Me Baby and Mike live would play rhythm guitar on that and it was always incredibly loud aggressive rhythm guitar in a way that was, you know, I mean, like, I got that it was exciting for the audience, but there were times where I was just like, God, Mike, just cool it a little bit. And we got, we were on the boat, and we were able to commandeer one of the stages to rehearse on. And Curtis Salgado was going to be singing that song, which he knew he used to sing it in the old Robert Cray band. And, and we started playing it, and I realized that the song felt wrong without that incredibly loud, aggressive rhythm guitar that used to bother me. And, um, uh, I don't know. I feel like, um, I feel like I, I always wanted to avoid looking like I was making it about me or like I was trying to capitalize on my friend who had passed. So it was always a little awkward knowing where I stood with that. But I ended up I ended up um, ended up going through all of these tribute shows and and starting to book my own gigs that were where, you know, I would do a few of the songs Mike and I had done together, but also songs I had written over the years. Um, and I was actually starting to talk to a label about signing. But I kind of knew that I was not in a place to be able to do that. Or maybe I thought I was in a place to be able to do that, but then when it would come time to actually write new songs or figure out what a new record would be, I just had a massive mental block. And at the end of 2019, I ended up having a depressive episode that, um, like for the first time in my life, I didn't play guitar for almost three months. I couldn't even pick it up. I ended up getting some medical treatment, which helped a lot. But it was the first time where I'd ever felt like I sort of needed to relearn how to play. 
and not relearn like I knew where to put my fingers. They just didn't go there anymore. And I think it was just, you know, a delayed reaction to losing Mike and then the whirlwind of spending the first half of 2019 trying to proceed as if things were still normal. And, you know, um, irony being what it is, I started playing gigs again in February of 2020. Good time. And, yeah, and then in, in March, that was it. There was no, you know, I mean, that things shut down. And, and I, my, my whole family, we very much took the lockdown seriously. We're in a two-family house and my parents are in the upstairs apartment. And the mantra was, let's not murder mom. So we were hyper aware of uh, quarantining and staying masked and distanced. And our daughter was uh, doing school remotely. And actually me, my wife and JQ, our daughter, became very close and really survived and thrived through all of that, except that I wasn't out there making music and I had just barely come to terms with being able to make music again before everything shut down. Which did a number on my mental health and my physical health, but, um, but, uh, when things opened up again a little more I ended up going to Denmark in November 2021 to play a big festival there which was just a sort of a massive triumph and that's when I ran into Kid Anderson because Rick Estrin and the Nightcats were there and he was like you've got to make a record and then uh you know, my friend Kirk Fletcher, who had been there, texted me. He's like, you've got to go make a record. You should do it at Kid's Place. Um, and I was like, yes, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I And I started thinking in terms of what songs would I want to do. I actually started writing again. And then um, in on Christmas Eve of 2021, I got COVID. And COVID hit me so hard. I got hit with long COVID harder than anyone I know who got COVID and survived. I basically spent a year unable to do more than an hour of any given thing during a day because I would just have to go back to bed and collapse. And I would be fine for that hour of doing the thing. And then, you know, I'd realized that I'd reached the end of my rope before I saw it coming. And the other thing is that over the year before that, there had been a switch in psych meds and I had gained almost 100 pounds. And I was just in physically the worst shape I've ever been in. Um, And honestly, spent most of 2022 unsure whether I was going to live to see 2023. Wow. Actually, no. Yeah, I guess that's the way to say it. But in... But I... uh, In... June of 2022, I had bariatric surgery, gastric uh, sleeve bypass surgery um, for weight loss. And between that and exercising and and practicing singing and playing guitar every day and all of that, I've lost 135 pounds. Um, I'm exercising every day. I'm in better shape than I've been in. I'm probably in 
I was skinnier when I was a teenager, but I I don't think I've ever been in shape the way I am now, which isn't saying all that much, but but um I got back in touch with Kid Anderson and with Mike Zito who owns Gulf Coast Records and was very out front with both of them. I said, I really want to make this record. I don't know how much I'm going to be able to do to promote it. You know, because I haven't done it yet. I don't know, you know. Like, there was a certain amount of um, taking a leap of faith that was involved even in going out to California and booking a week of studio time because I was pretty sure I could get through it, but also I knew, like, if I had to, you know, if I had to finish the record from home, then that just had to be okay Um, because I wasn't sure what it was going to be like. And then I went and made the record, and it was one of the best experiences of my life. And so between the weight loss and the exercise and getting myself back into shape, I would say that I am... I still feel the long COVID exhaustion sometimes. Um, I'm able to do things, but sometimes the exhaustion backlash is super hard. And, you know... What does that mean? Does that mean you you have to lay in bed for days or hours? Yeah, or... well, it, 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 it's hours these days rather than days. Um, and I can get through it sometimes. I just I just reach the end of my rope. And the problem with it is there are a lot of things I can't know whether I can do until I actually do them. So I felt for a while like I was in a holding pattern of like, I think I'm ready to play, but I'm not sure. Do I start booking things even if I... You know, and how what would happens that look? If, I'm like, if you, I don't even know. I, I, and that's that's one of the reasons why it's taken me this long to get back to doing it because, um, because there is the leap into the unknown aspect of it. But knowing that I could get through making the record was a huge step. Now, ideally, as far as business plans go, what I would have done is, you know, at the same time I was putting together the record, I would have started booking gigs, so I had gigs in place to promote the record when it came out. But if I had waited around to do that, I probably wouldn't have ended up making the record. I needed to start somewhere. And and the record was the place to start. And it's an excellent record. The record's called Nothing But Thank Time. You. It came out... It's, it's, my, it's my favorite record I've ever made. Um, and it's personally, it's very personal to me. And, you know, radio play has been very good. The reviews have been spectacularly kind, which is really great. Um, The thing I don't have is the immediate feedback of going and playing in front of people. And, you know, these days, the record industry being what it is, so, so much of selling records is going out and, you know, doing the whistle stop tour and selling them by hand to the public. Right. Um, so, so on, on that level, I feel like there's a little bit of distance and I wish I didn't have that distance, but, but it's been important to me to learn to see this as part of the process. I think that I've got a certain amount of PTSD from, especially the situation with Mike, but also from, the pandemic starting and then from getting COVID that if it doesn't happen with this record, that might be my only shot. And 
that's not a way to live your life. Um, and that's also, um, that's also because I've suffered from three once in a lifetime flukes in a row. You know what I mean? Yeah. How does that influence the music that you created on the album? Um, there is a, there are some songs that are explicitly about that. There's one called Time to Move. Actually, that's the one that's explicitly about that. Um, there are very personal songs about my mental health, which it was important for me to put out there. And and I think there was an element of... This is something I very strongly believed from... Well, from back in the Blue Tones, but also it was a guiding principle of uh, what Mike and I did, which was, um, you know, if you're making a record, then try to make a record of the things that are most meaningful to you and the things you do best. You know, I feel like a lot of people, myself among them, so I'm not, you know, I'm not getting on a high horse here, but a lot of people when making a record second guess what their record should be, you know, what, uh, so either they're trying for crossover success or they're trying to do something unexpected, which can be useful or trying to impose limitations, you know, like it was important to me that I play a lot of guitar on this record because not because that's the thing I do best and that's the thing that is my primary voice and is the thing that sets me apart as an artist not that there aren't other brilliant guitar players and guitar players who are substantially better than I am but the the my guitar playing is the thing I bring to the table um and, you know, my singing and songwriting has come along with that, but I didn't want to make a record where I was self-consciously trying to be tasteful or edit myself. I wanted to make a record where I said everything I wanted to say. Now, that for me is never going to mean endless jamming. It's never going to mean, uh, you know, I mean... You know, there, there are plenty of records by more rock-oriented guitar players that are far more stuffed with guitar soloing than this one is, but for me it was, if I felt like I had three verses worth of guitar solo to say what I wanted to say, then I should probably do that instead of feeling like I should tastefully whittle it down to two. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I wonder how, what you went through all the things that you went through in the last few years how that affected your playing or changed your playing and you said at one point you couldn't even play so right as a guitar player how different are you as a player on this album compared to the player you were before or is there any difference i f i feel like there's actually that's an interesting question i feel like i've very much been along the same path as a guitar player for about the last 10 years um, and my playing is growing my playing I think the thing that is interesting to me is that 
listening to the record, I don't hear someone who has been forced to take a few years off. It kind of feels like the progression I would have made as a player if I'd been honing my skills every night since the Welsh Ledbetter record. And I think part of that is that, you know, I... I was very focused on the record I wanted to make. Um, Part of that is also, and this is something I should mention, it's the first time I've made a record under my own name that was produced by someone else. And, you know, I mean, I produced the Welch Ledbetter record and, you know, I was always, you know, the the Sugar Rain and the Blue Tones record were, were credited as band productions. I'm the one who spoke the language of studio more than any of them. So, so I... I definitely had a large hand in producing those records, although I think they're accurately credited as band productions. But so, so anyway, my point is that trusting Kid to make the production decisions actually, I feel like this is a more personal record than it would have been if I'd produced it myself. Because Kid. knowing that Kid had my back on things like sounds and some of the arrangement decisions and some of the hiring of players allowed me to focus on playing and singing and and not on the sort of um, logistical details that come with record production. And, and really, you know? I mean, I don't know if there's anybody else who's as good as Kid these days. Right, and, and that's the other thing. The other thing is that Kid is, and I say this with a certain amount of amazement and gratitude, Kid is a huge fan of mine. It's mutual as musicians, but I think Kid had a a vision that this record was going to be special before I did. And I think it was important to Kid that, um, that people know who I am, present tense, as an artist. He's a huge fan of my singing, which I gotta tell you, as a singer, is much easier to sing when you're with a producer who really likes the sound of your voice. <laughs> um, and it's funny, so we, the initial idea was, especially because I've been sick and because this was the first project like this I've done in a few years, the idea was to keep it a small core of people. So Kid ended up playing bass and some key, and keyboards and we had Bob Welsh who's equally as good on guitar, piano, and bass. He ended up playing piano mostly on the record. And then I brought in um, a French drummer that I've worked with for 20 years in different situations named Fabrice Besswat. And it was this small core of people. And then Kid was like, well, for one of these days of basic tracking, I think we should bring in Jerry Jamont as the bass player. Now, Jerry Jamont is one of the greatest bass players in history. He played on... I mean, for, for blues fans, I mean, he played on the original hit version of The Thrill Is Gone by B.B. King. He played on Aretha Franklin records and uh, Ray Charles records and King Curtis and Otis Rush. and Like, he was one of the legendary R&B bass players of all time. And, and Kid promised me, you know, like, he's not intimidating in the studio. <laughs> And I was like, I'm going to have to go sing in front of this guy. And the voice I hear in my head in front of him is Aretha Franklin. And and it doesn't matter how many scales I practice. That's never going to be the kind of singer I am. But because the atmosphere in the studio was as 
creative and positive as it was, and also because Jerry Jamat is just the most positive creative force you could possibly imagine. Like, yes, he's played on, you know, Aretha live at the Fillmore, but he's also there in the moment to make the music that you're making present tense. And he's excited about working with people. He's got great ideas. Um, and he was very complimentary about my singing, which, you know, I mean, if, if he was, if he was honest and bowled over, and if that was a, a, a polite, friendly lie, then it's exactly the polite, friendly lie I needed to succeed in that moment. I don't think it was, but if it was, I'll take it because it allowed me to sing in front of a guy like that and be comfortable doing it and express myself. But yeah, no, uh, without Kid, this record wouldn't have happened and it wouldn't have been as good as it is and it wouldn't have been as personal as it is. Okay, so I have to ask about the the Beatles tune. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we started talking about that earlier. Yeah, I mean, the the fact that Beatles was the first thing that you really got into and how you kind of got into playing the guitar, I don't know how easy it is to actually pick a Beatles tune to record and make it your own. Like, you just, I mean, when you think of all the great songs that they've done... Yeah, and, and sometimes sometimes covering songs like that... It's funny, for as much as Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison were uh, some of the greatest writers of all time, so much of the Beatles' greatness is also in the sound of the records and performances. Like... I think um, them as a self-contained unit when that wasn't necessarily a thing that uh, was predominant in pop music, you know, it's hard to separate some of those songs from the sound of them playing and singing those songs on those records. Um, Whereas some of the older standards work just as well, you know, with a voice and acoustic guitar, with a large orchestra. A lot of times Beatles covers sound like covers of someone else's material in a way that's hard to put your finger on. Right. Um, but you chose I Me Mine. So, so I Me Mine is something that I've always, I mean, you know, it's more or less, I mean, it's like a minor key blues ballad that turns into a blues shuffle. And, and once, once I started thinking about it, I actually went on Google and tried to find who else had covered that song because I was like, there have to be like five blues bands who have done this thing or someone, you know, I know when uh, George Harrison passed away, there was a big tribute to George. It's like, I bet there's an Eric Clapton version of this somewhere that, that if I record it, people are going to say, oh, well, you're doing the Eric Clapton version. (laughs) But I looked around and I couldn't find any blues recordings of it, which, you know, it's, it's funny. So I just started messing around with it and I did a Facebook live Sometime in 2021, maybe a little bit afterwards, I don't know. I don't remember whether it was before or after I ran into Kid in Denmark, but I was doing a bunch of blues songs, and Kid was online watching it and commenting, and I did I, Me, Mine, just me and a guitar, like I did a bunch of blues songs, and I did I, Me, Mine, sort of, because I had the song in my head, and I think Kid got that in his head that, First of all, that I should make a record as a singer. And second of all, that you know, it was sort of in the back of his head that I should do that song, although we didn't really talk about it. And I started working up an arrangement in my head, and I made a very detailed demo with you know uh, 
drum loop tracks and I played piano and guitar and bass and sang. And it unlocked the kind of record I wanted to make because I realized that I was playing and singing it the way I play and sing as much as anything else I'd recorded or played to that date. And suddenly I knew how the record I wanted to make would sound. I knew how I would approach it. Um, that regardless of the material or the source of the song or the perceived genre of the song or subgenre of the song, because it's mostly blues, um, that I was going to, you know, play and sing it as if it were a blues song that either I'd written or I'd been playing and singing for years and that I wasn't going to try to get self-consciously clever with, you know, like there's a, um, there's a jump blues song on the record called jump for joy, which actually, if you look at the lyrics is the darkest single song I've ever written and jump for joy is totally ironic, but it, it, it ends up getting taken at face value. Um, but there's there's a version of this record where I, because it's a jump blues song, I maybe am playing the sort of period appropriate guitar and trying to think about playing like T-Bone Walker or Pee Wee Creighton or something. And I'm, you know, playing jump blues the way jump blues should go. Um, and instead, I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to play it and sing it the way I play and sing. And I think maybe that's one of the biggest differences in me as a musician now versus me as a musician 10 years ago is that I'm kind of comfortable knowing what that means, the way I play and sing. You know, when I first joined the Blue Tones back in 2001, I was very self-conscious about both the legacy of the two guitar players who had been the Blue Tones before me, which was Ron Earl and Kid Bangham, and all of the blues tradition you know because it's a much more traditional band than I had been at been in at that point and my first round through the blue tones I think I was very much self-consciously trying to find what my identity was because I didn't want to feel like I was covering Sugar Ray and the blue tone songs with them so I tried to avoid although Ronnie and Kid are two of my biggest influences but trying kind of trying to avoid playing like them and then started going deeper into the older records of, you know, uh, the old traditional blues records. And I feel like, you know, I started to really reclaim my identity after that. And over the last 10 years, I think I've become much more comfortable with what that is. Speaking of the Blue Tones, did you not do some gigs with them this summer? Yeah, just a couple. It, and it was great seeing those guys. Um, like, what is that like? Because I know you said that you weren't sure if the mic, the project with Mike will would be a side project. So obviously it wasn't initially your intent to leave. It must have been difficult to make that decision to leave. And is it awkward? I I think, well, no, it's not awkward. I think that, um, I think at this point it's just sort of everyone's part of the family. Um, the other thing is that, um, a little while after I left the Blue Tones, Anthony Jirasi also left to concentrate on his own thing. So, you know, like when I did those gigs, there was uh, another guitar player, a great guitar player named Tom Ferraro, who's been doing Blue Tones gigs. So it wasn't quite like coming back to the exact same band that I had been in. It's more like a family reunion, like hanging around with old friends and doing the thing we do. Right. Was it awkward? You know, 
I think at the point when I told Ray that I needed to leave to focus on the thing with Mike, I think it was so obvious at that point. I think he was just kind of waiting for me to come out and say it. I think the first time I left in in the mid-2000s, it was much more awkward because there wasn't... um, You know, there wasn't an obvious thing I was going to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm... At this point, I'm not interested in joining anyone's band. But I will definitely go out and play with great players if I'm free and they've got a gig available. You know what I mean? Um, and that was one of the things. when When leaving... I almost said, when leaving the Welch Ledbetter connection, which is not what happened. Um, When Mike passed, um, you know, I think there was a certain amount of people wondering if I was going to start playing with another singer, whether it was going to be as a collaboration or whether I was going to join someone's band. The thing about me and Mike, and this stayed true for the duration of time we played together, who knows what would have happened as we both grew. But Mike and I were so much on the same page that a Welch Ledbetter gig was more or less the same music I would have been choosing to make on a Mike Welch gig, just with a different singer who brought different things to the table. So I felt like... I never felt like, with Mike, I wasn't getting to play my music. I felt like I was able to express myself as fully as I'd ever been able to express myself in any situation. And when I would sit in or play gigs with other with other singers, like, you know, Shamika Copeland and I have known each other since we were kids, and we have a very deep musical connection. But I remember going to sit in with her and thinking that, you know, if I were to find myself in a situation like her band, not that she was looking for a guitar player, uh, but... Or, like, let's use uh, Danielle Nicole as an example. Again, I have a very profound musical connection between my guitar and her voice. But her music is not my music. So, either I would end up as side person playing someone else's music, or it wouldn't be the right thing for their music, you know? You know, uh, the blessing with... Mike, musically for me, is that I, my guitar was allowed to be duet singer as much as accompanist. You know, it was about the back and forth and the call and response. Um, in some ways, it was more like Sam and Dave or something than it was uh, most guitar player singer collaborations, which, you know, in order for that to work, you really have to be with a singer who wants to sing the same music you want to play and wants to hear that much guitar back and forth with them. Um, so, you know, knowing that if I wanted to make the music I wanted to make, I was going to have to go back to singing myself. And also the last thing I wanted to do was put anyone in the position of being a replacement Mike Ledbetter. Which makes sense. You know, um... Because that's, you know, that's not helpful to anybody. No. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, so, like, playing with the Blue Tones, I love playing with the Blue Tones, and I love Sugar's voice, 
you know, more than anything on this earth, and I will be happy to go play with them, but I'm not in the market for joining a band, no matter if it's as good as that one or not, you know? Yes, well, one of the best, and, and thank God we got, we had the opportunity to hear you with them for so many years. Yeah, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm under no illusions. I'm, I'm sure that there will be, you know, plenty of times where I go out and play with Sugar again. And, you know, like there's a next month, there's a, uh, an event at the Regent Theater in Arlington, Massachusetts, where Sugar and I are on the bill with Ron Earl and a few other people. And I'm sure I'm going to play with Sugar then, you know, and I'm looking forward to that. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm, uh. I'm lucky to count those guys as part of my family, I think is the, is the way I see it more than anything else. Sure. Um, Mike, I've taken up way too much of your time. Thank you so much for doing this. Hey, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Always, I, I always enjoy talking to you, and it's been many years, so I'm glad we got a chance to do this. And I'm glad. Like, you and know, that, I know you've... And that you were patient, patient with my wildly erratic uh, schedule and returning emails. <laughs> So. No, but I, I know that we've corresponded over the last few years, and I know that you've gone through a difficult time, and I'm, I'm glad you're seeing yeah. the light at the end of the tunnel, and things are looking a lot more yeah. positive. Yeah, no, I'm. Uh, I it, it was it was big for me last year when I started getting healthier and started actually thinking about things I wanted to do in the future, with the assumption that there was going to be a future I wanted to be part of. It was huge. So I'm, you know, it's 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 a process and it's progress, but it's happening and I'm very happy about it. Me too. Thank you again for doing this. Thank you, Mako. Mm-hmm.